the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Today, I'd like to welcome Teresa Lavina from Bilbao, Spain, who is a multi-award winning and talented actor, director, producer and writer. Teresa trained as a Stanislavski actor in Bilbao, Spain from 1992. She moved to Ireland to continue her acting training in 1997 and trained in the Focus Theatre in Dublin with Deirdre O'Connell and for three years full time in Bull Alley. For the past 20 years, she has worked as an actor, director, producer and writer. She started her career in RT's Don't Feed the Gondolas. She has produced and directed several plays, including Stuart Parker Award winner Wide by Gospel. She wrote the play Every Woman's Thoughts that was performed in the Irish Writer Centre. She has worked as a TV producer and co-presenter with Lee Momania in the pilot TV series Blend, and she created the TV series Outside Inside, which RT broadcast as Mono. She has worked for over 20 years producing different projects, including the creation of Ethnovision, Ethnic Television, and helping in the early stages of SARI, Sports Against Racism in Ireland. Both projects were part of the National Plan Against Racism in Ireland. Teresa studied Level 6 Film and Doc in GCC, where she was awarded Student of the Year. Then she progressed to study Film and Doc in GMIT, where she was awarded a First Class Honours Degree. Currently, she is the director of Nova Productions Limited. She programs English for Life and European Culture Project, where she teaches filmmaking to international students. She has directed and produced over 10 short films and one feature film, The Audition. She has written seven screenplays. She has been recently funded by Galway 2020 Small Towns Big Ideas Project as co-creator of the newest Irish film festival, Shot by the Sea. Lavina's documentary, Untold Secrets, will be the closing film at this year's Galway Film Flat. Untold Secrets shares the story of the survivors of the Tune Mother and Baby Home paying particular attention to the survivor Anne Silk. Teresa Lavina visits Tune and hears the experiences, fears and exceptional lives of Anne Silk, PJ Haverty and Catherine Corliss. This thought-provoking and emotional documentary sheds a harsh and honest light on the scandal and examines how society was and still is. Okay, so welcome to the show, Teresa. How are you? Good, good. Uh, as good as I can be in rainy Ireland. Yes, well, it, it's envious. Teresa is in my country and I'm in Teresa's country because you're from Bilbao originally, no? I am, yeah, yeah. How many years have you been in Ireland? I've been here since 1997. It's uh, I actually lost the count of the years, but a lot. <laughs> Did you come to Ireland or go to Ireland like for love or adventure or what brought you there? No, well, I tell you the real story. My dad passed and I wanted a break and I loved Ireland because I was here in the summers as a student. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to have a break for a couple of weeks and uh, visit my mates. And then, you know, uh, I just stayed in the end. So I'm still on holidays officially. Right. So, so sorry, what year was that? That was 97, you said, no? Yeah, 1997, yeah. Okay, okay. A long, a long holiday, Simon, at this stage. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I mean, Galway is a great place to visit and you will find lots of Spanish people there. The other day I was telling somebody here about Galway and they said, oh, I think I've, I know some people who went there. And I said, yeah, if you go to Galway, you will meet Spanish people everywhere. 
Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's, it's there's a lot of Spanish people here. I've been only in Galway for the last six years. I was in Dublin before that, but uh, yeah, I I haven't really met so many Spanish people. Like kind of my circle, most people are Irish because my husband is Irish, and then the kids are are Irish, you know. So, but I do have two Spanish friends here in Galway, like you know, so I can talk to. Very good. And when was the last time you were back in Bilbao? Oh, I was there like three weeks ago. And then like five weeks ago, I went twice because I was here for two years because of the COVID. So uh, I was able to go over because I was filming a little documentary. So I went over I went over twice this summer. Yes. And, and I mean, obviously in Spain here, things are good and bad because, you know, there's lockdowns and as they say in Spanish, toca la queda, which is like restrictions and curfews. Um, but it's not too bad. I, I have said to people in Ireland that over the summer in Spain, there's been a lot of freedom. You could go to bars and restaurants and it didn't seem like there was coronavirus here at all. So in Ireland, it was hard for everybody, I think. Yeah, that was the impression. Uh, when I went over the first time at the end of June, <clears throat> it was like, wow, COVID doesn't exist. It's great to get some sort of normality, you know. And uh, yeah, and then I came back to Ireland and pubs and everything was still closed. And then it's like, wow, back in coronavirus time. like, And then... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Back to Spain, and especially in Bilbao, is crazy because I mean the the town that I come from is like a, I don't know, it's just it's brilliant, it's just lawless completely. So I had I had a great time, I have to say, and I, I didn't catch COVID. I mean I'm vaccinated, but I didn't catch it anyway, so it's great. Yeah, well, that's good. At least that's a good thing. So let's go let's go back a little bit. Um, we'll we'll go back to kind of your early life in Bilbao. So you were born in Bilbao, yes. Yeah, I was born in Bilbao. I was a child of the 80s in the Basque country, which was was violent enough now looking in the hindsight, like, you know. And then, uh, yeah, so, yeah, then kind of most of my adult life has been here in Ireland, like, you know, but I have lovely memories of Bilbao. It's a place I really cherish and I, I really love, you know, and I hope I, I, I retire there, you know. It's quite interesting. A couple of weeks ago, um, I watched a really good documentary on ETA and okay. about the whole the whole movement in Spain. You know, it was like a I think it was like an eight part series, and I watched the, the whole thing in two days because I was so into it. I was like, wow, this it was really a really good documentary or docu mini series. I have to catch it. Yeah, you have to tell me the name. I I'll... I have to find the name. I think it was just called Eta, but I have to find the proper name. Maybe there was another name. Um, Ooh. and was that on Netflix? Like no, I it, it was it was on. I use this uh, kind of peer sharing thing called Envy, and it was on oh, this. Okay. But I, I'll find the name for you. And um, so it's re a really interesting documentary, and it I was gripped. I mean, you know when you know when you finish one and you have something to do, but you're like, oh, I want to watch another one, and going to bed late because I was so into it. But it was so visceral and gritty and real, and it just showed it like because obviously in Ireland we had the problems with the IRA and yeah, with terrorism. Yeah. I could see lots of similarities about what they believed to be correct. And yeah. it was, you know, up to the movement, up to the time when it disbanded and everything, you could see how the Basque people kind of changed their mind. Whoever believed in it before, you could see how they were changing their mind. So for you in this time, it must have been a, a crazy time. Yeah, it, it was actually, it was quite disturbing sometimes because I remember 
uh, there used to be some uh, kind of uh, protests and then the police will come and they'll start shooting uh, rubber balls and you'll have to hide. And if you were lucky enough that the popes didn't shoot the shooters before you got in, that was fine. But otherwise you had to hide under cars, just run away. It was kind of scary, you know. I can imagine. And also tell me, in Bilbao in that time, because... Obviously, in the 80s in, in Madrid, you have the, the El Movimiento and this, this movement of like musicians and artists and filmmakers and everything. So was it like this in Bilbao? Did it have a very good cultural scene? It, Bilbao has always been a, very, like a big cultural scene, but I mean, related to the kind of the politics and all that. I was too young, you know, so I probably I, yeah. mean, I just I don't know, to be honest, you know, I, I wouldn't know. Yeah. Right, right. But 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 to this day to this day the great thing about Bilbao, it's very cultural and I mean it has so many tourists, maybe less this year because of yeah. what happened with COVID. But I mean it's one of those cities that culturally has a lot happening for it. And I imagine for you as a teenager, it was a great place to be, no? Yeah, well I mean my family were kind of very much into like uh, well culture and art. So since I was very little I was brought to the opera and ballets and um theater plays. So I think that's what kind of got me because then I wanted to be an actor and I started studying acting, you know, but I think it's because I was so linked to to theater from a very very early age uh, my uncle worked in a theater as an accountant anyway but uh, he took me to a lot of productions and I was able to go backstage and I was fascinated meeting actors and actresses and you know that was a beautiful time so uh, yeah I think that's how how I started I guess okay and would you say you know I, I sometimes ask people as a teenager what kind of hobbies and things were you into did you kind of always find yourself drawn towards the arts more or did you do sports and things like this? Yeah, both arts and sports. I did a lot of karate for, I did karate for 11 years. I did athletics for nine years. And then, but um, like say in terms of uh, of art, yeah, I was always, I started playing guitar when I was nine. Uh, I was never able to play properly. Now that I see your guitars in your background, no, I've, like I've never been able to play, play, but uh, uh, yeah, I started then. I, I always wrote songs since I'm a kid. And and I've always, like, when I was, like, 17, I started, or 16, I took my first photography class, and my dad bought me a camera, a Minolta, I remember. Oh, and yes. He got me the whole kind of little studio so I could uh, develop photos, you know. So the small toilet in the house was my, my editing studio for photographs. And the dark room. Was, yeah, the dark room. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so that was it. And then we had like a a projector at home, and I was forever playing the little kind of uh, you know the little taped movies. What you call them? The ah, uh, the I eight millimeter ones. Yeah, the eight millimeter ones. Yeah, and I actually remember the smell of the dust of the machine, like you know when wow. the the actual because like when the machine spins, you know, it's like kind of air coming out with little particles of dust and I, I used yes. I remember the smell. Yes. I remember yes. the smell actually of that, you know. So I, I have I've spent many hours, you know, just playing with that uh, that projector. And can, can I ask you were like were your parents into similar sort of things? Did you did you look at them and say, Oh, I want to do what they did or they did they weren't into the same things you were? Uh, well my dad would have uh, would have been like a big reader, but he was uh, he was um 
like a mineralogist that ended up working in a bank and uh, after kind of teaching in university for a while. And then my mom was one of the first computer engineers from uh, from Deusto, but she never got a job because she was a, wo- a woman. So she was forever programming from home. So that's not very active, but I say it's very creative. And then she ended up, uh, uh, my grandparents had a shop, uh, like a tobacco a tobacco shop in the in where I lived, you know, so she ended up working there and that was the end of the programming. Then she started programming to do, you know, the Lotto, Loteria Primitiva. Oh, whatever. yes, yes, yeah. So, yeah, 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 yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So she did that. She actually won a couple of times. So I, I say she was good, like, you know. But, uh, in your family, I, I mean, were you an only child? Do you have how many brothers and sisters do you have? Or? No, I, I, have, I have one brother. I have one brother. He lives in Tenerife. And then... Yeah, that's that's all. Like you know, I have a very kind of a uh, big extended family that we get on. We're pretty close together. My cousins, you know, some of them live in Ireland now, which is great. And uh, yeah, so that's basically kind of my my background. Your background, and it's it, so. Let's say, obviously, when you were a teenager and you were interested in the arts and culture, but of course, as every teenager does, you want to get a job and you want to earn some money to buy clothes, to buy camera equipment. Did you have any strange jobs in your teens? Well, I was so lucky. I was one of the first people bringing Spanish students to Ireland. I was making one million pesetas when I was 17 years of age. Wow. <laughs> I don't have that type of money now, like, unfortunately. But yeah, yes. I was always very. Uh, like I was like a little entrepreneur, you know, I used to teach maths to kids in my class and I was a, I was a really bad student. So I ended up doing a, what's it called, like a, a level five, the equivalent now and level six. It was like kind of level five, six, seven altogether, FFP. I did that, but I, I like suddenly in there, I, I had like very good results. So I, yeah, I used to teach everyone in the classes to earn a few mornings, like, then, uh, yeah, I had the students. You were the grinds teacher. Yeah, I was. And then I had, like, a, I remember in my granddad's uh, tobacco shop, I used to sell these jewels for uh, customers that used to come. I, I got involved in so many things, like, you know. Well, I don't know. That's good. Yeah. That's good, though, because it shows you're very <laughs> ambitious and very driven. Yeah. And you will say, I can do that. Yeah, always. I've always done that. Yeah, always. I've always pushed myself to, to everything. Even when we were 17 and our first trip to Ireland with children that were like 13 and we were only 17. And we had this guy that he was like the face of the business. And it was my friend and me that we were only kids taking all these kids through Heathrow Airport. And oh, my God, I don't know how, how we actually made it. For the whole month in in Waterford, we went to Waterford a couple of years, but we had a great time and no one died, so that was good. That has become a very big industry, obviously affected now by COVID. But I mean, yeah. for the last 10, 20 years, that's been a huge industry in Ireland for lots of families and host families. Yeah, I did it up to last year when the COVID completely destroyed the business, and then I didn't want to take it back, you know. But uh, yeah, I've done it. Uh, all those years, like, you know. You know, when a lot of the Spanish students go, for example, to Galway or other parts of Ireland, they find it difficult because they're in Spanish groups. So did you find that a lot that the Spanish parents would be saying, but they're not learning English because they're all in groups of Spanish kids? Yeah, well, I mean, the ones that come for a short period of time, like, you know, for five, six days, yeah, they don't really learn a lot of English. I mean, we have, we had, had actually a cool program because we always did like a, we taught, uh, say, English through filmmaking, English through theater, you know, special effects, 
So it was kind of a different program, and we always oh. had like uh, Irish kids taking part. Like you know, TY students used to join, yeah. and it, it was fun, you know. And then in the summers, yeah, we did like a whole thing, making a little movie in three weeks, and uh, a couple of the movies have been shown in in the little cinema in Galway, which is is a great platform, you know, here in Galway, and you know, so it's, yeah, so I always kind of. Uh, geared everything towards my my craft i guess you know which i feel very comfortable so that's good though because i like what you said there obviously because lots of kids come over and then maybe they're um you know they're put through the normal program but in your case for example they were doing art and culture and theater which is very different yeah it was it was a cool program like you know they used to write myths and legends at the same time of learning about irish myths and legends i don't know it's really cool it's kind of different more creative i guess wow that's really nice so for you obviously you know you you started going over when you were 17 or 18 did was it something then for you that you said okay i want to get into acting because for you, did you would you say that you got more into acting in Ireland or in Spain? No, I, I like it was. I was already studying acting as a kind of an after school. Well, not not an after school. It was a studio, you know, that I used to go uh, Stanislavski when I was sixteen in Bilbao, and then I was already doing that. And when I went to Ireland, I just happened to meet a. Uh, well, I mean, I, I met a group of people through a friend of mine that lived in Ireland. She was the one that we were organizing the trips together. So I used to kind of organize the stuff in Bilbao and she will uh, get families in Ireland. And she had a group of friends and some of her friends were actors. And so we had like a common ground. So um, one of those actors, uh, Terry McMahon, he's a, he's a uh, film director now in Ireland. Uh, Terry... Uh, Terry and I got like uh, good friends, you know, and he came over to visit in Bilbao and we were never involved as like as, as a couple, but we were good friends and he got to meet my parents. And, you know, when my dad died, he was the one that told me, Teresa, why don't you come over? You know, and I went over to him and his, uh, his partner at the time. And uh, that's how I stayed in Ireland. So uh, Terry and his friends helped me auditioning for Bull Ali. Yes. And uh, I got a place in Bulali. I don't know how, because I, I didn't speak much English at the time, but I, I kind of auditioned. And uh, since then, I just kind of kept it up. And then, yeah, I got involved. I started working very early, you know, like in my first year of college. I met this wonderful guy, Ken McHugh. He was the cultural planner for a Dublin a City Council at the time. And he got me a job. It was a community employment scheme in in the Galway Arts Office. And yeah, I just kind of created my first little business, which was Ethnovision, Ethnic Television. And that was our first adventure. And kind of, I just kind of kept it up from there. Like, you know, did many things. And, and can I go back there? Because obviously that, that Stanislavski method of acting, explain to us how that's kind of different. Because I know my, my sister is an actress and, and she studied in Trinity. So may, I don't know, maybe she studied that as well. But there's lots of different kind of methods of acting nowadays. So explain to us about the Stanislavski one. Yeah, well, Stanislavski really brought kind of theater, the theater as we know, to 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 like say of uh, like Europe and America, and then from his technique, 
there were three main techniques, which would have been Estelle Adler uh, was one technique, and then you had uh, Lee Strasberg created another technique, and um, Sanford Meissner uh, created another one. And those three kind of uh, techniques are the ones that are used now to to act, you know, and to teach acting to students. You know, but Stanislavski would have been kind of the father of all those th- techniques, you know. I watched a movie yesterday and... Uh... They were talking about uh, this actor. I don't know if you know him, uh, John Burknell. Do you know this guy? He's an American actor. And he he was kind of getting, uh, how will I put it, like, you know, co-starring roles and stuff. But then he got more popular when he did that Marvel TV show, The Punisher. And but there was one of his TV, one of his uh, movies he made and he had to play a mute character in the movie. So for the few weeks of rehearsals before, he's completely stayed in character and didn't talk to any of the crew on the shoot. So, you know, obviously you hear of Daniel Day-Lewis and you hear of the Christian Bale method acting. Yeah, that's method acting. Yeah, that's Lee Strasberg. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very unusual, all the different types of acting and the, and the actors that are well known that we know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. All of them. Like, you know. But I would say it's a good mixture. A lot of actors probably mix the, the methods. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's whatever works for you, you know, but I mean, I, I prefer uh, Meissner. I prefer Meissner technique and I've kind of specialized on that and I've spent like a good few years kind of, a, you know, kind of acquiring the technique, like, you know, and I, I teach the technique and I coach uh, actors, you know, using that technique. And if I'm directing actors, I, I certainly try and use some of it, you know. I mean, I've kind of got my own ways now also so many years, you know, but... Uh, I find Meissner technique maybe a little bit healthier than the method, you know, like Lee right. Strasberg. Lee Strasberg can be, I mean, I think it could be maybe damaging, especially sometimes when you work with actors, you're talking to, I mean, you're working with people that are very sensitive and and you have to be careful when someone sensitive is making themselves vulnerable, you know, in front of you or in front of a crew. And I find maybe sometimes Lee Strasberg, if you're not working with people that are too professionals, it can be tough for some actors, you know, so, uh, but that's my own take. I mean, it, it's a fabulous technique also for other people and whatever works for, you know, if you can deliver, you know, a good performance, just hitting emotional notes, you know, as far as you get there, like, I mean, any technique or even your own technique, you know, if you, if you get there, it's, that's, that's, that's what it's for, like, yeah. Of course, of course. And, and like with anything, like any skill in the world, some people are more natural than others and, they adapt to different methods of acting quite easily and other people have to work much harder. But that's like everything in life, no? No, I think everyone needs to call. I mean, needs to, 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 to train. It's like a gym. You know, I think some people are photogenic and they look great in front of the camera no matter what you do. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think uh, any actor should train regularly, like, you know. Cause, uh, and that's funny because in Ireland, uh, not many actors train all the time. While in the UK, for instance, actors go through so many classes and so many, you know, like workshops, because it is very important to, to keep your instrument tuned in. You know, it's like if you're playing a guitar and you, you don't touch it for uh, 10 years and then you try to play it. Of course, the strings aren't going to work. So this is the same, you know. Yeah, everything I mean, changes. Yeah, yeah, I think it's very important to, to keep up, like, you know, a good kind of either a, a, an acting studio or something that you can, you know, you can train 
regularly like you know regularly yes for sure and tell me let's go back so so obviously in, with your you know you would you would be an actor director producer and a writer so you you obviously in in your past as well you did some work with rt don't feed the gondolas and and you did some plays and everything do you have a do you have a like obviously now you know you're doing maybe one or two more documentaries and stuff. But do you have a in the earlier days when you started? Did you have a particular thing you preferred to do, which was like acting or directing, or did you change a lot? I I changed a lot, but I changed a lot because the country made me change. You know, I mean, it was Ireland in the '90s, and you know, you had a Spanish accent, and there was no way that you were going to get to be casted. You know, I mean, that that was it. So when I realized that acting wasn't going to happen, you know, which was pretty quick, you know, I started producing uh, producing theater, you know, and that was like I was very lucky. Uh, we had a few plays in the Fringe Festival, and you know. It was very exciting times, and um, uh, I married a writer at the time, with, uh, my ex-husband now, <laughs> you know. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, so producing was my, kind of my first experiences in the professional world, it would have been uh, producing, and then directing. I directed my first show in 1999, I think it was, it was, put on in the Irish Writer Centers. And I was very proud of it because I was kind of, you know, a Spanish lady there, you know, that had a play. In... That that was Every Woman's Thoughts, no? Yeah, that was Every Woman's Thoughts. It was great. It was performed by a friend of mine, Peter Reed. He was a man. It was hilarious, like, you know. And that was the first play, like the first kind of full-length play that, I, that I've ever written. <laughs> wow. It was, uh, it, was, it was fun, yeah. The question also is because... You know, obviously, Spanish people and Irish people are very alike in some ways, but culturally, we're very different, too. I mean, I, I get I get that a lot in Spain, yeah, where very, people say yeah. to me, oh, Irish and Spanish people are so similar. And I'm like, yes, in, so, in some ways, but in some ways, very different, because no. <laughs> the Spanish people are, have the Mediterranean culture more. But one question I want to ask you is, when you arrived in Ireland and... Obviously, when it came to acting and use, as you said, having a Spanish accent. But over the years, like, have you found difficulties being accepted into Irish culture or any type of xenophobia? Have you found it difficult at times? Uh, I mean, you get the odd thing, like, go back to your own fucking country and all that. It's always the same people <laughs> kind of say to you. No, yeah. I mean, I think Ireland has given me a fabulous opportunity to work. You know, I'm very grateful. No, I haven't experienced uh, xenophobia at work. I have experienced that maybe I hadn't had the same opportunities than an Irish person. Yes, I have I found that in, in my early days. But also, like, I mean, uh, when you're working in a language that is not your language, you're not going to be competitive enough because, I mean, first of all, you, you're not as articulate. You know, I'm, I'm much more articulate in Spanish than I am, I am in English, even to today, you know. So obviously, like some positions, although you can recreate in your head that you can do it perfectly fine as an Irish person. No, you can't. You can't because you don't have the language skills, you know, and unfortunately that goes against you, you know, a lot of the time. Uh, like, and that's not xenophobia. I think it is like fear that people think that you're going to fuck it up, really, like, you know, if yes, they, yes, if they yes. employ you, you know. So I guess nowadays it's more kind of, you know, it's more diverse. There's there's more diversity in Ireland now. Like, I mean, there's there's so many uh, foreigners like me. Like, <laughs> there's so many of us, you know. Like, I mean, people don't really care so much about accents. I still have a big hang-up about my accent, you know. 
something that I hate. I don't like public speaking because of my accent. I avoid some things because of my accent, but that's just down to me. You know, I mean, we, I'm not very, like, you know, I don't have a lot of self-confidence. That's the funny thing about accents because, you know, my two children are like 10 and 8, and we've been living here for eight years now. So they speak Spanish really well. And they always say, oh, Papa, tu Espanol está regular. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, and just for anybody who doesn't know that in Spanish, it says your, your, your Spanish is not so good. It's pretty bad or whatever. And I always, I always joke with them. And I'm like, listen, I've been speaking English more than Spanish. And my main job is as an English teacher. So I have lots of excuses. Right, yeah. But the thing is, I think for me, I've often thought, could I speak like a Spanish man if I wanted? And I always say, no, I couldn't because I have my own voice. So this is the thing about accents. Sometimes you have to change your voice so much to get that accent. Um, it's really difficult. Maybe actors can do it very well, but I can't imagine myself speaking like somebody from Madrid in that typical accent. So, of course, I sound more Irish or more American speaking Spanish. Yeah, because also, like, I mean, I think physiolog—I mean, physiologically, you can't do it. Like, I mean, because you're used to moving your mouth in a, cer a certain yes. way, placing your tongue in a certain positions, and, you know, like, just doing sounds that are completely different, because English is more nasal than Spanish. That's the first thing. So, I mean, that's going to change the accent right away. I mean, unless you're very aware that you have to do nasal sounds, it's not going to sound like, like a proper accent. No, no, no. And for example, my, my wife is Polish and for her, um, you know, she lived in Ireland for years and she learned English. But when she came to Spain, then Spanish was actually a little easier. She, she will say it wasn't, but I think for her it was a little easier because it was a little closer in structure to Polish parts of it then and so for her she picked it up a lot easier so language is a rhythmic thing and it's like you know music in some ways so some people pick it up faster yeah like i mean and also like i should have learned polish now that you mention it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it would have been easier probably you should have gone to poland maybe <laughs> yeah yeah god what the hell am i doing in ireland you know all this time now like you know well no i, I think you're i think you're you're enjoying it there and and it also for you you know like when you say the crack in ireland you know when you say to people the crack is mighty or the crack is good and and other people say what, what's the crack you know is that a type of drug or something <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's funny but but for you did you find the humor very different when you you know no i think both like i mean in fairness like i mean culturally i don't think irelanders i mean i irish and spanish people are similar in lots of ways are very different but i think the sense of humor is quite similar like you know because it's, it's sarcastic humor, like, you know. And Black you can, humor. Yeah, and you can take the piss of anything you think yourself, like, you know, which is great. And that's, you know, I mean, that's that's similar in both kind of cultures. You know, I think Ireland is more traditional than Spain, which is hard to believe, you know. Yes. But it is definitely it's a very conservative country, like, to nowadays, like, you know. And uh, there's still a lot to, to break through, you know, to... To, yeah, it's, it's very, very conservative, like, you know. Well, you'll find that because I find that in Spain, too, as well. Like, I, I, I find Spain in lots of ways very open-minded, but then when it comes to, like, Catholic kind of culture and, and how 
like how far people will go or how open-minded. Some people are kind of closed-minded because of ca- the Catholic religion and there's still a fear of how you will look and all of these things. So I think, unfortunately, the Catholic Church has put this on all of these Catholic countries where they find yeah. it hard to lose this stigma. Yeah, absolutely. It's an organization that should be banned at this stage. Like, you know, I don't, like, I completely say that in the open. You know, I think it's... It's caused so much damage, you know, to to all societies in so many centuries that it should be banned as a terrorist organization at this stage, you know, seriously. My God. And when you consider the church, you know, like you said there, for lots of people, they don't like when you say this. But the thing about it is most of the wars around the world have been to do with money and religion and oh, greed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the church have been involved in so many, you know, terrorist wars and civil wars and everything and aided the wrong side sometimes and but never had to account for it. Yeah, absolutely. They get away with murder, as you say, in Ireland. Yeah, I think I, I think it is ridiculous at this, you know, time and age, like 2021 and still... Oh my God, I just can't believe that they're so powerful. They're so powerful. And unfortunately, like a lot of, uh, like say people like my age or um, I mean in our 40s, you know, that they, they still suffer or we suffer from Catholic guilt that was implemented to us while we were going to school. And uh, it's noticeable sometimes. Like I even catch myself sometimes like, oh my God, why am I thinking this? And it's oh yeah course you know <laughs> yes of course of course it's just you you can never shake this so you know when i mentioned there obviously i use the word xenophobia and, and sometimes it's a this word is a little strong but i mean i think it does exist it's sometimes in all countries and all cultures and it can be sometimes like an undercurrent where people don't realistically they don't mean it they don't mean to be ignorant in these ways, but sometimes it's all they know. So I want to go back there to, you know, when you were doing Ethnovision and you also did the sports against racism in Ireland. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, that was Ken McHugh again. He started that with Frank Buckley, I think it was. And uh, I just kind of took part a little bit in the beginning, you know. It was, um, it's still going on, like sports against against racism in Ireland. It's a great place for kids to, to mix and, you know, play football and it's brilliant. You know, it's, a, that's, it's, it's actually, it's a lovely organization. Yeah, that's really nice. I mean, those kind of organizations are great because they also kind of take people from different cultures and put them in and say, look, you, you mightn't have had a chance for different reasons. But we're going to break down these barriers and give everyone a chance and to learn lots of different things. And not even only in sport. I mean, yeah. that kind of thing should be in all types of activities, whether it be Irish dancing, whether it be theater. It's a great idea. I think so, because, I mean, I mean, it's, it's about informing people. Like the problem with people is, I think, when it comes to, you know, people that are racist or, uh, you know, xenophobic, whatever, it, it is fear. It's fear of the unknown. And fear that the unknown is gonna take over the known, yes. you know. And it's that it's down to that. Like I mean, and the more you educate people, the more you show them other cultures, the more you show them other traditions, and the more they feel more comfortable, you know. Because, like I, I mean, I mean, I have like seen people like, oh, I don't like people from whatever country, and then they meet someone from that particular country, and they get on really well. And it's just like that initial thing of rejection. And I think it's fear, you know, it's fear and. I mean, I think in Ireland also, like, I mean, we have to keep in mind that it's a country that that kind of uh, got freed of of a, of a very long uh, like invasion from the English 
like recently enough, like, you know, so, I mean, I say like, I mean, they're afraid of losing their country again. I don't know, like, you know, I, I don't know what <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. but it could be to do with that. Like, you know, cause I mean, I can see it and I've, I've done a little bit of our research and I actually want to kind of uh, do my PhD on um, like uh, the misrepresentation of these minorities on a screen in Ireland. Like, you know, cause when you watch Irish cinema, it's a complete, misrepresentation of reality if you go to the streets in ireland it's not the same as when you watch a film you know and like i think uh, films should actually uh, reflect some sort of a of a social reality and i don't know in in ireland on a screen is like some sort of utopian just only irish you know yes uh, yes world I mean, it happens sometimes in television that you have the odd police actor or the odd black actor or whatever, you know, but I mean, in, in general, it's not the numbers that reflect the social reality of Ireland nowadays. You know? I, I think actually that's something, though, that I, I totally agree with you in Ireland. I remember, you know, looking back to the Irish movies, you know, The Field and these, and they are, there would always be an American that would come into it somewhere, you know, because they, there was this big kind of relationship between Ireland and America. But even now, I think with more, you know, independent films and, and amateur films as well, there there isn't maybe enough, you know, inclusion of other minorities. And this is something that we can change. But I believe myself, this is also in lots of countries where whereby the the, the film industry is very set in its ways. So, for example, even in Spain, you know, you have Hamon, Hamon and all these famous Spanish movies but nowadays, you kind of wonder, are, is there more inclusion of ethnic minorities, black actors? And I think this exists all around Europe. And, and it's something that should be addressed. And I think that they don't open the door enough for these people. Even if they don't have the best skills, they should represent because that's who's living on our streets. Yeah, also, like, I mean, if you, and it happens in Spain also, like, I mean, it not only happens in Ireland, I just happen to live in Ireland, so I'm, I'm more aware of it, you know. But, like, the thing is, when you look back and then, like, you say, jamón, jamón, like, I mean, if you look at that movie, you would think that back then, like, I mean, people from other ethnicities didn't live in Spain. And it's the same yes. with other, like, as in most of European countries, well, in most countries, like, you know, you look at cinema from the last 20 years and it's like, a, it's like the one, uh, you know, nationality is just the nationality of the filmmaker and, the, you know, the actors are all from the same country. And I think it's like, like say, if people in 50 year times, in 50 years time, look back at those movies, they're going to think that there was no other nationalities in any countries. Like, you know, of course. Which is very bizarre. Like, that's what I mean. It's not the social reality of what's going on in countries. Like, you know. No, and, and it, it's sometimes as well, like we had that in filmmaking in the 80s and 90s where maybe they wouldn't talk about things like domestic violence. In some movies, which would be more gritty, they might. But you, you found a lot of other movies they would be afraid to put that in, into TV shows and this kind of thing, because they didn't want to upset the church and the government and so on. Nowadays, it happens a little more. But realistically, when you look at, for example, in Ireland, in the I remember in the 2000 and in the 90s, there were so many Brazilian people in Gort and there were so many Polish and Romanian people. But you didn't see them on the... You, you, you did a little 
And like Fair City and stuff, they would have yeah, a yeah, Polish true. actor sometimes. But in, in general, I don't think they looked for that many people to fill those roles. No, no, absolutely not. You know, and it still happens. Like, you know, I mean, there's a huge movement now with inclusion and diversion, which is great to watch, you know, because I mean, uh, like, I mean, I include like minorities, like say, even people with disabilities or, you know, old people now, like, you know, I mean, you see very little kind of uh, like older actors and, you know, I mean, all this, I mean, I think it should be more of, you know, of giving space to everybody. But I mean, sometimes it is impossible in fairness, you know, I mean, it depends on the production. It depends on, you know, I mean, who is funding, if you're funding it yourself and, and you happen to be working with friends and then you don't know someone from whatever, or, you know, I mean, it's just so many. There can be lots of different circumstances and sometimes People think after the fact, oh, maybe I should have had this person in. One question I want to ask you, which I, I always find interesting, as I said, being my sister as an actress, is that do you feel that in Ireland and Europe and you know the United States, obviously with Hollywood, do you feel that older women, well, you watch a Hollywood movie and the leading man is 50, but yet his girlfriend is 30? So there's always been this big age gap and it's it's very hard for women in their 40s and 50s to get roles sometimes because of this. Sometimes and aren't we more beautiful actually and more wise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it but does. it's it's something that exists this ageism. So for men like for men you look at you know George Clooney, Tom Cruise, these kind of actors and the older they get, the classier they seem to be, and they're they but for they're like the silver fox and so on. But for for women, like you see some women like Dame Helen Mirren and yeah, Frances McDormand, you know, Angelica Houston, yeah, Frances yeah. McDormand. There's some yeah. of those actresses, but for a lot of other female actresses, they kind of get forgotten, don't they? Yeah, but also that I, that goes also down to who is uh, writing these movies or who is producing these movies. You see, so or, or casting. Yeah, well, more than casting is that that comes down to the producer like you know and the writer because if the writer is writing that particular role like you know i mean you can't really change it if the producer agrees with it you know so before it goes to the casting agent i mean the casting director there's many people behind it you know that want to portray whatever you know yes yes and for you now you know obviously because you're you're probably behind the camera more than in front of it. Do you still do some acting or is, is it more difficult? No, I just try to avoid acting. I don't like it at all, to be honest. <laughs> I just, I prefer to direct actors. No, I don't, I don't enjoy acting. You know, it makes me very nervous. I just hate being in front of the camera straight up. I look like shit. I'm just so, I'm not photogenic whatsoever. You know, it's just, it's ridiculous. Don't you know? be hard on yourself. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm being objective. I mean it. Like, I'm not even looking for pity. Like, I'm really objective. You know, I know what looks good and what looks bad in front of a camera. And I'm not in the good side of it. Like, believe me, you know. <laughs> so, I try I try not to put myself into that situation. I actually don't even like photos of me at this stage, you know. Yeah, well, I'm the same. I mean, for me, I'm like, I say to my wife, oh, don't put that picture yeah. anywhere. You know, it's, I, I think you're, no, you know, yeah. it's, it's if, 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 if somebody said to me one day, would you ever like to be an actor? I said, a radio actor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm the same. Not even radio because the sound is also bad. You see, I'm doing this podcast. But, uh, yeah. No, no, no. But, but um, so, so obviously then once you moved more into writing and, you know, producing and directing, did you find yourself going in a particular de direction as regards like doing 
you know, obviously fictitious scripted work or more factual based things. But how did you kind of decide which way you wanted to go or was it an accident? No, it, it happens in both ways. Like, you know, I started writing both things when I was like before acting even. I, I, I write since I'm very young, you know. So uh, it's always been a, a mix of everything, including poetry, songwriting, uh, philosophy. Like I, I wrote so much, you know, I have books and books and books and notebooks filled up with notes and scripts ideas and documentary ideas and TV programs and everything. I like my head is like, I don't know, like some sort of, uh, I don't know, like a good. idea That's producing good. machine. Like, yeah, so much. But uh, like say, as I've, as I've grown older, I I think I'm I'm more like kind of yeah representing minorities as I said you know maybe more towards human rights you know those those are the things that appeal to me you know so uh, yeah the kind of you know that's 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 what I like the next project that I'm working on uh, is uh, we're developing a script now it's been funded by Screen Ireland and that's again is uh, i'm working with travelers i'm having a fantastic time uh, learning the travel uh, the, the culture of the travelers is beautiful beautiful bunch of people made me feel always very welcome you know and i'm loving i'm loving working with uh, michael collins he's a, a brilliant professional you know uh, a dear friend at this stage and and his wife Catherine joyce amazing woman also so strong I'm very, very lucky, you know, to, to be involved in this project. Yes. Well, I mean, I know myself, I did work in the past with the, the traveler groups in Portumna and in Gort around this area. And in Tume, I worked in Tume for a long time with some of the traveler groups with music. And we recorded an album. And I mean, it was great fun. It was brilliant fun. It's such because they get a bad rap sometimes, the traveling community, because of, you know, violence or alcohol or other things on the streets, things that happen in bars. And obviously, you know, the, the people say, oh, the, the, he's a con man or so on. But the thing is, when you when you get to the kind of ground roots of the traveling community and you see the children and you speak to the mothers and you see them, I mean, they're wonderful people and they have great stories to tell and they have great ideas. But unfortunately, they've kind of always been kept outside the fence because for one reason or another. So. When you work with them, it can be challenging because of their resources sometimes. And I remember teaching traveler children and sometimes the parents, the families couldn't afford to buy guitars. So you work around it and just say, hey, listen, practice as much as you can in the center and so on. But I mean, the reward of working with them is amazing. So I, I can understand where you're coming from there. Absolutely. And you know what I found? I found that the, the traveling culture is so similar to Spanish culture. It's just like, I mean, the families are really together. I don't know, yeah. there's some sort of like a real similarity there. Like you don't have to ring before you turn up somewhere. Like someone knocks. It's great. You know, I felt at home. I swear to God, like, you know, I was I was filming again for uh, Catherine and Michael last year. We were doing a little kind of a documentary for them for, uh, for the Travelers Pride Week. And we were filming in a in a halting site in in Blanchestown, and well, two halting sites in Dublin. And honest to God, I had the time of my life. So beautiful. I had honest to God, just I had a great a great time. Like you know, and I'm I'm finding out a lot of things about their culture, and I find it so interesting. And you know, I love to work more on that. You know, I'm I'm actually doing a little web series also with children now. If walls could talk. And yeah, I'm including the travelers' kind of a uh, history. 
tales and things, you know, because I think it's so enriching, you know. So now that you mentioned uh, the, tra- uh, the travel community in Tuam, I'm working with them also, uh, Martin Ward. Martin Ward, I, yeah, I know so, Martin well, so, yeah. yeah, so I'm working, well, Martin Ward's uh, son, if you know son, what I mean. Son, yes, so, yes, But yes. tomorrow I'm talking to um, uh, to Martin Ward, that, you know, because I want to interview him for this uh, little web series, you know, I want to hear like his uh, his stories, you know, it's fabulous. Like you know, it's a, I'm fascinated. Like I love learning anyway, so it's it's it's, it's great to to be in this position. Yeah, no, I mean, and in in Tume there, you know, I can I can speak for you know the the traveling community in Tume there because I I from Curfin and I grew up going to school in Tume and and then obviously you know teaching guitar in the town and teaching music and uh once i started teaching there i loved it it was great and i worked a lot with martin ward the the, the dad and you know some of the women there were amazing and you know they they did a lot for the traveling community in tune there so much because uh the town had a bad name sometimes and they did a lot and they changed people's opinions and and the same obviously with the 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 county council in Portumna and these places, so I you know my heart is off to them because sometimes it's it's easy to walk away from these situations. But I think once you go into the the traveling communities world, they do welcome you and and there's no animosity and there's no kind of um, what's the word like aggression or anything like this like people sometimes think and they're lovely people and and they're they're and for you I imagine obviously because. Somebody asked me that question one day. They said, oh, is the traveling community in Spain the same as Ireland? I'm like, no. I said, for me, you know, here, obviously, in Spain, they call them gitanos. And, you know, they're more kind of like Romanian gypsies or Romanian people. So they're very different because I was explaining to my wife. I said, for example, in Tune growing up, the, the, and in Ireland in general, the, the traveling men and boys would love to do boxing and they love that sport. But here in Spain, I don't see the young boys like being into boxing in the same way. So they channel their they channel it differently, no? Yeah, I'm not so like, I mean, I did have a, a, a Kitana friend, Kitana, when I was little. And, uh, yeah. I, I had to have her on the sneak because my mom wouldn't let me hang around with her. And I was like, why not? Okay. Why not? Like, you know, I said, so, oh, yeah, so I used to sneak out to her house, like, you know, because yeah, I, I, Ruth was her name. She was lovely, like, you know, and her family were really nice again, you know. So maybe I have a traveler's heart. I don't know, whatever, you know, but uh, I, yeah, I just, uh, I love meeting people. I don't care where they come from. I don't, I'm not judgmental that way. Like, you know, I just, yeah, well, that's good. Just give people a chance, like, you know, and then, like, okay, if you get on with a person, you get on. If you don't, you don't. But I mean, definitely I wouldn't be judgmental before knowing or I wouldn't kind of, uh, label a whole group of people as anything because I mean no that doesn't work I mean there's different individuals in each group and you can like some and you cannot like some others but you can't globalize the whole kind of uh, you know people like you know in, put the same uh, all the eggs in the same basket or whatever you call it yeah. yes and the thing is you cannot be in these situations you know you 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 cannot have prejudices or presumptions because a lot of the time you have to stop and get to know the people because you you can't you can't make opinions just on what you hear you have to go into that world and then go you know actually people are wrong about this or you know of course it's like everything there's always little bits of truth that people blow into a bigger deal 
and they, then it makes uh, it's, if it's something bad but small, they make it into something big and bad. So unfortunately, this is what happens. Something happens in a community, and it makes everybody look at that community in a bad light. No, I was thinking because I mean I remember being stigmatized because I was a Basque person, you know, and it was all oh, like I mean, so you would go out of the Basque country on your holidays, and no one will talk to you because you were from Eta. Not every Basque person was from Eta. Like you know, some people were like supporters and some people weren't supporters but if, like in general in Spain in the 80s uh, people will assume that you came from the past country and you just belong to ETA like the organization you know <laughs> which is crazy like just, just because of your postcode yeah so I think I mean I think because I grew up like that also maybe I'm more, more tolerant you know because I lived it from the time I was a kid and I didn't like it I guess you know so and also because I'm I'm a, I'm an immigrant in Ireland, you know, I'm a foreigner, so I can't be too petty, you know, about anything. Because <laughs> I mean, people like I mean, I mean, it's like if it's like, yeah, do you like Irish people? Well, I like some Irish people, and I don't like some other Irish people, you know, like, of course. Yeah. like I don't like the whole population of Ireland, like you know, I mean, right? No, you'd have you'd have to be mad. You'd have to be mad. There's assholes. There's assholes in every country. <laughs> Everywhere. Like, you know, but it's, a, it's a, a way of speaking, you know, what do you think of the Irish? Okay, which ones? Or which person, you know? Or the same with Spain. I, like, I mean, I generalize that way. Yo, Spain this, or we were even talking like that before. It's a way we speak, but it's so difficult to... You know, I mean, there's nice people everywhere and there's, as you say, assholes everywhere, you know, so you're going to meet a mix of both, like, you know. Of course, it, it's without a doubt, without a doubt. So let's let's get on to your, obviously, your latest feature, which yeah. is, you know, uh, causing controversy, but for a good reason. And obviously, it's um, doing well on the, the film festival scene. And, you know, tell us a bit about it, the movie Untold Secrets. Tell us what it's about. Yeah, well, Untold Secrets is kind of the, it features the untold testimonies of uh, people who survived Irish institutions, you know, and is mainly about people who grew up uh, in orphanages or that they went through the system in a mother and baby home. And that's what it's about, you know, but it's, I think it's a very honest movie. It took me a long time to find a narrative in it. You know, it took me took me a big effort to uh, take myself out of the movie in terms of like being the director and not having so much of me in the movie and just respect the voices of the contributors, which I think they're, they're quite quite respected. You know, and that's that's untold secrets. You know, a movie that is upsetting a lot of people, but is making a lot of people think. You know, which is. I think it is good for, for a movie, you know. Yes. Well, unfortunately, you know, the, the, the three words that I always use when I talk about things that happened in Ireland, but not only in Ireland, in Spain and other countries, it's secrets and lies. Because unfortunately, in the, in the past, you know, lots of crimes were committed against humanity and against people and children, especially. And they were always brushed under the carpet and they were always kind of ignored because maybe the perpetrator of these crimes was known to, as somebody or was somebody who, you know, people considered important, whether it's in, in politicians or, you know, instructors and in sports or whatever. I mean, so unfortunately, you have this situation in Ireland for years where people talk about these things, but nobody talks loud enough. 
and then what happens? Things are ignored, and then somebody comes forward with reports of it, and they're not believed, or somebody cast out because they say, no, no, that person couldn't have done this because that person is a good person, but they don't know that that person has a dark side. And this is the, the case for many, you know, people, many perpetrators. And look, I watched your movie, you know, the other night, and, uh, you know, I, I thought it was, like, really, I want to use the word heroic, and I mean on your part, but also on the part of Anne Silk and, you know, Jude Hughes and PJ Haverty and these people in the, in the documentary, because... This is the problem that for too long in Ireland, people have not been able to speak or didn't have a voice. So I think what you've done now is you've given them a voice and a platform. And unfortunately, you know, for some people, it might be too late. And But for their families, it's a great thing. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's needed, you know, to let them speak very loud, very clear. And it's very needed at this moment that the government redresses the situation, you know, because they, they just they, they're just going to die. They're, they're not going to live forever, you know. Like the lights of uh, Jude, he's 80 years of age, you know. When is the redress going to come to him? Or I'm, I'm past, so there's no there's no uh, closure for her, you know. And the sad part of it, like, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, people saying, like, oh, like, say, the lights of uh, the Killerly family is portrayed in this, and, like, people, okay, I understand, like, some members of the Killerly family weren't uh, even born. Uh, when these events were happening, and I understand that you know that they may be upset, uh, not by uh, discovering through my documentary because they already knew, but they they could be upset because the the word is out there now publicly, you know. But uh, I mean, I can't press the mute button in someone like Anne. Anne has a story that needs to be heard, you know, and uh, for for people to question if Anne is lying. Or if Anne is not lying, like Anne, I can tell you that Anne wasn't lying, you know, because, I mean, her testimony was very, very honest. And there's still witnesses alive, you know, that can verify her testimony. So she spoke the truth and she spoke her truth because it's her life and it's what she lived, you know, and she's, she has to be allowed to voice that, you know, and she, she has to have the space for people to hear her. I mean, in this you know, documentary, it's gritty and it's real. And for some people, it will be upsetting because, you know, lots of women in the 60s, 50s, 40s, all of these kind of decades had nobody to, to help them. And, you know, the as, as one thing is pointed out very clearly, the fathers never were to blame. They could always run away from the situation. So really, women were the enemy of the church at this time. And women who had children were the real enemy of the church because they were disobeying the laws and they were breaking the laws. And in the end, the church were hiding these things away like big bad sins. And now we have the situation where obviously these children in Tune and in, in Bethpera and other places around Ireland were, you know, uh, maybe some of them, I want to say, use the word murdered because who knows what happens. This is the thing. It, like People will say, oh, maybe there were accidental deaths, but maybe some of them weren't because sometimes with, with you know these nuns, they could be very cruel. And I know they were under a lot of orders from the Catholic Church and everything, but you have a choice to leave this and step, step away from it. So I feel obviously at this time, these children never had a chance. And some of them that did get away, 
they got out and they probably thought, oh, now my life will start. But unfortunately, maybe they went to foster homes who treated them like slaves and abused them and so on. So the situation, we don't, you don't know if it got better or worse for them. Yeah, a lot of them were treated or viewed as subhumans, you know. And uh, like I can, the, the sad thing is like, and I still hear it on the radio, like, I mean, there's come the name, condemnation, what's it called, Con- People condemn condemnation. condemnation. The way that say uh, American people treated the African Americans in there, and you know, slave slavery and all that. But it was the same here, and it's like people are afraid to say. I mean, the same way African American people were viewed, you know, like subhumans, kids that came from uh, mother and baby homes were viewed the same way, like subhumans. Mothers that went went in there, they were seen as subhumans, and that is a problem. And it has to be acknowledged, because if it's not acknowledged, it won't change. You, you know, I mean, it has to, it has to change at some point. Uh, do you feel now, obviously, you know, we have to mention Catherine Corliss because she's done an amazing job. And, you know, she, she, you know, she took the information that was given to her by some people and ran with it and said, OK, I'm. I'm going to, um, you know, do something about this. I'm going to make it work. And I'm sure for her. It went, it got crazy because it, it just it kind of developed its own life then, but it was a very brave thing for her to do as well because you're kind of taking on the government and as we know in a lot of these cases with the government and the church even now to this day the government will say oh this is wrong and we condemn this but literally they have each other's backs a lot and they they cover for each other oh absolutely and like I mean you can you can see it even. Even with the, the the distribution of this movie, you know, every festival is getting a threatening letter from the Kilali family saying, if you uh, show this movie, you know, you may be, uh, you know, uh, sued. Things like that, you know. I mean, something that's happening with this and it's opening my eyes is like, I mean, when you censor cinema, you're talking dictatorship and that is dangerous. Yes. So for someone wanting to censor cinema, for me is to have the they have the views of, of a dictator, and that is dangerous, especially when you have some of these people still in public positions. You know what I mean? That is dangerous to have a person with those views in a public position is actually dangerous. You know, because once you censor cinema, <laughs> then you know you're in trouble. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of the festivals have been uh, threatened and then afraid by what can happen, you know, and they've taken down interviews, they've taken down Q&As, newspapers don't want to publish, they don't want to publish the articles about it, it was only the Irish Examiner that uh, published an article uh, written by Kaylin Hogan, and every other single newspaper we've gone through the, the senior editors are stopping the interviews. No one wants to publish it. And that is crazy, you know. That is crazy, you know. I know, like, uh, some guy that I didn't know actually wrote a little opinion piece also as part of the Irish Examiner. And, and that's it. It's, it's having very little coverage. But then, yet, you have a documentary coming out by RTE now sometime in the autumn. And that's being already put out there, you know. Give it attention. And that documentary will have a lot more views probably than my documentary. 
because it's not being the promotion is not being censored. See what I mean? How do you feel then on that? Because obviously the people who want to censor yours and and as you say, you're receiving letters, you know, litigation letters and all of these things. But how then do RTE get away with doing the same thing? Is it because they have connections? No, because RTE doesn't do the same thing. You see, my documentary has serious allegations. RTE's documentaries, they have stories about survivors, you know what I mean, which are very important and they need to be out there. But but no one is getting close to the point that, like, you know, like accusing... Uh, somebody exactly, or a particular person, yes. And what, and what Anne did in that interview is to put someone very important on the spot. So people don't like that. Orti will never go near my documentary. That's a shame because, I mean, rather than RTE like creating their own one. I mean, they should look at yours and say, we will screen this or we will, you know, show it. Because the thing is, it's a great piece of art and it's a great piece of factual history. And it will be a shame. I mean, if I watched yours, okay, and I only watched yours like two nights ago, if after watching yours, if I was to watch something on RT that didn't have all of the same facts or, or didn't, I would kind of feel let down. I would be thinking, what's this? This is like watching you know half of lord of the rings you don't know what's going on <laughs> yeah yeah no i did talk to i knew they were making the documentary i actually offered to 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 collaborate with them and they told me that they were well sourced i know where uh, they went to talk to Anne, and Anne didn't want to talk to them because it was very sick when they went to her you know it was too late so uh, i don't know if they would have got to Anne if they would have uh, published it i don't know like you know but certainly they weren't interested in my documentary before and they're not interested in my documentary now. Like, you know. Yeah, well, here's the thing, isn't it? Because if they had went to Anne around the same time that you interviewed her, you know, maybe she would have said to them, well, are you going to print the truth? Are you going to are you going to edit everything I'm saying? And if if they had said, oh, no, don't worry. I mean, she she could have been misrepresented where where like. You know, I mean, I don't want to tell, I don't want to say too much about the, the movie to ruin it for people. But listening to her on this was, you know, she's like such a brave lady. And, you know, you don't make these kind of things up because Absolutely. You know, it, yeah. it's, it's different. We, we live in a time where people can be sensationalist and, you know, they can make up things to get attention and to bring notoriety to their lives. But you're talking about a woman who's lived her life, has had her children and she has nothing to gain from telling lies. I mean, you know, so the thing about it is the first part of her story about the institutions is all true. And right now, everybody knows this. Everybody in Tume and Ireland knows these things happened. So why is it so hard to believe that the second half of her story is not true? Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I believe, and you know, I believe that what Anne said was true. And it's fact-checked that she was fostered by the Killer League. I have the Tusla papers that prove that, you know. So I don't think she was lying. And there's also more stories. Like, I mean, Anne wasn't the only child that was fostered by the Kilali. There's more stories about other kids that were fostered by them. And there's horrendous stories, like, you know, that you hear, and they're not in the documentary. So, you know, and I think, I mean, I think that, okay, I, I understand, like, even... Like, say, uh, Mark Killely Jr., you know, he was getting glorified last year uh, The COVID, uh, during COVID restrictions. 
there was, uh, remember the Golfgate uh, dinner in Clifton? Oh, yes, I heard about this, yes. Yeah, but that was done, part part of that was done in honor of the, the death of Mark Killely, like, you know, like commemorating the death of Mark Killely. And at the same time that that's happening, you have Anne dying of COPD, parallel to it, you know. And that contrast is spooky, you know. To, I mean... For me, to have a perpetrator glorified and then you're asking a victim for, like, I mean, well, you're actually saying that the victim is lying because that's what the family is proposing. I think that is outrageous, like, you know. Yes. No, no, I, I think you're right. I think there's they're very contrasting stories. And, for example, if you're taking somebody who has, you know, knowingly been involved in some of these crimes and maybe not have perpetrated the crimes themselves, but someone they know or family members and glorifying the, this then. And on the other hand, as you said, a person lying in bed, being a victim all these years and no one believing her, you know, there, there's not really much compassion there. And the problem is that when you look at some of the interviews in the in your movie, you know, you hear the sides of the victims, but you hear the sides then obviously of some of the other family. And you kind of think to yourself, well, of course, I mean, you're going to defend your family, but there's maybe a time to own it. There's maybe a time to say, look, this happened in my family. We're not proud of it, but we want to redress the situation. And we want to, because, you know, this the problem is in every family, there is somebody throughout the family history that does something bad or a murderer or something. And the problem is that in these cases, for years, it's all bring shame to the family. But that's something we have to change, because if if you're my sister and you do something bad, it doesn't make me a bad person. Absolutely. That's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're still my sister, but I can judge you and I can say, look, I don't know why you did it or I can forgive you or not forgive you. But the point is, you cannot hide it anymore. Because that's what brings the shame, hiding things. Yeah, and I can tell you how the story happened, you know. And I can tell you that Don Akilali and his sister, they were invited to my house by myself to watch the whole interview with Anne from to, I mean, back to front, you know, take notes on it, and then I asked them to respond to it. And they didn't want to, so they were given the chance to respond, you know. Plenty of chance to respond, actually. They didn't want to. They didn't want to, you know. So, I mean, and I can say that because that's a fact also. And I mean, it is the truth that both Donna and his sister came over to my house to watch the full interview with no quotes. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing that, you know, obviously you are on the front line and you right now are receiving these letters to, you know, to stop you screening. Oh, no, I haven't received any letters, Simon. I haven't received anything. Oh, you no, haven't, sorry, only, only the, the film, film festivals. festivals. I haven't received anything at all. Only the film festivals, yeah. Okay. They okay. haven't written anything to me. Festivals. I didn't receive any correspondence, you know. And one thing I wanted to ask you was, I saw recently, obviously, you had a post where you 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 changed the group to a private group because you couldn't post anything on Facebook. That was That must have been pretty difficult because you had to kind of, bring it behind a closed door. Yeah, and then I have that group going on, and then I thought, you know what? No, I'm going public. That's it, you know. And, uh, like, I mean, the group is great because I'm going to be able to release maybe some interviews that I haven't posted, in, I mean, that I haven't uh, released in the documentary, and they're, they're important also, and I'm going to keep the group alive for that, and whenever I have a bit of time, I will get on to that, you know. 
But uh, yeah, it was like every festival, the moment I posted, oh, you know, I'm delighted to be part of that festival, then like, bang, letter to the festival right away, you know. So then I started contacting the festivals before posting in Facebook, like, are you okay with me promoting this in Facebook? Because you're going to get a solicitor's letter, you know. So when you get the solicitor's letter, yes, please give it to me. Thank you very much. I will keep wow, it in the box wow. with the rest of them, you know. So so realistically, what's happening is you're being watched and your Facebook page oh, absolutely. is being yeah, monitored. Definitely. And the minute you yeah. say, for example, oh, we're going to Toronto Film Festival or something, they are contacted by solicitors. Yeah, they haven't done Toronto. Toronto hasn't been in touch. But yeah, exactly. Like say that happened to the other festivals in Ireland. Yeah. How have you found um, like the the support of the local people in Tume about this? You know what? Like, I mean, there's so much ego going in there and so many fights between groups and stuff. I prefer not to get involved with any, to be honest, you know? Right. I mean, that's right. the honest truth. Like, I don't mean to be, I don't mind to be open about it. Yeah. So, you know. So let's talk, obviously, you know, Anne was a, a, a great person and she had a great story to tell. But I, one, one character as well I was particularly drawn to was Jude Hughes. I mean, he was such an interesting man to listen to. And he, I mean, you could, you kind of felt like you could listen to him all night. I mean, he was so interesting and so calm about the situation, considering like how tough of a life probably he had too. And, you know, he, he came from a different angle because not only was he, as you, as they were called in the thing, a bastard child, but he was a black bastard child, which was double the effect. So he was very brave and like you have to commend him for not being so angry nowadays and being very calm about the situation. Wow, Jude is just gorgeous. He's an amazing person, you know, he's very positive. He's got a force that is amazing, you know. And, uh, but, but he, uh, he, I think he suffered a lot also, you know. Uh, he's very resilient, but he's a he's a very powerful man, and he's very he's done so much. He's a real activist, you know. He went to see Nelson Mandela and everything. Like he's done so much for human rights. Amazing guy, amazing guy. Amazing, amazing guy. He he's he's a guy. Like I would love to have him on the podcast sometime because I know he's older and everything, but he's so interesting. You could you feel like he has a real persona. Yeah, and he's very articulate and it's lovely to listen to. You know, I have an interview of uh, nearly two hours with Jude. You know, only Jude alone. Like you know, and I will I will release bits of that interview also. You know, because I mean he he has an amazing story. You know, amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, once you started going on the film festival scene and, you know, I know you you went to the Underground Film Festival in Toronto and so on. And obviously, we, we have to say you closed the Galway Film Flat this year, which was an amazing achievement and well done on that. Um, how how have you felt the response has been from the film festival audiences. Ah, no, it's great. It's very good. Like, you know, I have to say, like anyone that has come to the festivals, they, they really uh, they, they really appreciate it, you know, uh, the testimonies of these guys. So I'm, I'm delighted with that. Uh, so, so very good. Uh, yeah, closing the film flower was, I, I wasn't expecting it, you know, it was a, an amazing uh, opportunity. Uh, Unfortunately, the Film Flower was the first festival that got that that letter, and they took down the the Q and A, and they took down my interviews. You know, which is it's a pity, you know. But uh, yeah, 
it was it was it was an important moment you know i think it was very important for the survivors to 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 go to the film flat and be able to speak in that q and a to the audience you know that was a very important moment for them so i hope at some point they can put it back up you know because it is it is very important did you have you know like when you were in, in any other festivals outside of ireland did you have different responses, you know, from different cultures, which would say, wow, I can't believe that happened in Ireland. Did you have kind of responses like that? No, not really. Like, I mean, because I haven't traveled because of COVID. I mean, San Francisco Irish Film Festival is next week and I was denied my NIE, so I can't travel. Oh. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I They're giving me an opportunity to have a Zoom uh, with the audience, like, you know, afterwards. So I'm looking forward yeah. to that. Toronto was more like a small little kind of festival, you know, that uh, I I mean, you don't really talk to the audience or you don't engage with the audience. Derry, which is the UK now, like, you know, I mean, but it's, it's Ireland, like, you know, I mean, Northern Ireland. I mean, they were, they, the audience really liked it. They were so, so nice because uh, there was a Q&A and they were actually, I they allowed me to talk about the solicitor's letters and the audience were giving me ideas on how to distribute the movie and which community centers will take it. So that was cute, you know. It was so nice. It was like a, you know, like a talk with friends, and uh, that was lovely, you know. And then Docs Island, I didn't go myself, so I don't really know, like you know, which uh, which way it went. The, the Underground Cinema Award, it was really nice, but it was like a reunion of friends because uh, most people in the audience I knew, like you know. You knew so, them. Uh, yeah, yes. that was lovely. And then next will be now the Indie Cork and the and yeah the the Irish Film Festival in in, in San Francisco and then another one that I can't release but it's, it's I I can tell you that it's gonna be the Spanish premiere uh, very soon oh wow and that is that I'm going to 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 Spain I can't say where but okay but yeah I, I will I will keep I will keep my ears yeah, yeah, open yeah, for yeah. that one I will I will go to to Spain yeah for when will the general release of the documentary because obviously now it's um it's kind of behind closed doors and film festivals but when. When do you hope to release it, you know, as a, a general release? Well, I mean, uh, like at the moment, that documentary needs a, a little bit of post-production, you know, so that's, uh, I have a distributor that is interested, but we need to, to do that uh, that uh, post-production to it. You know, the editing needs to be to be mastered, the color grading needs to be fixed, you know, and the sound. Because, uh, like I, I did, most of that I did myself, you know, and... Uh, you can see the flaws. It was a tremendous amount of work that I put into that piece to the point that I thought, ah, I'm going to work in McDonald's. It's not worth making <laughs> documentaries anymore. Too much work. You know, it was, I think that documentary, maybe I got paid. Well, I actually paid. I didn't even get paid. But it cost me a lot of money in archive photo. And, you know, it wasn't funded. So, I mean, that money I put myself. But if I was going to pay myself, say, for the hours of, of editing even, you know, I don't know how many hours I've done. I mean, but at least I say solid four months, six months full-time edit, you know. Wow. Crazy. It's like, I don't want to, I can use this word, but maybe I'm wrong, but it's kind of a labor of love because, oh, yeah. you know, unless you're really into mm. doing something like this, you wouldn't put those hours in. But you're you're obviously very invested in this project and it's turned out really well. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm a bit disappointed with the post-production, as I said, like, you know, because, uh, I mean, I couldn't acquire funds, but yeah, I, I, I loved it because, I mean, it was so real. It was so, and these people opened up to me, you know, I respect them so much. They actually didn't know me 
a lot of them when I interviewed them and they told me like the their their secrets, you know what I mean? To someone that you don't know. Yeah, and, of course. And like I mean some of them would have not spoken publicly about it before, you know. And I think like I have I have only respect for them and their courage, you know, and I hope like I mean that was my hope. I thought like God, like I have the opportunity to give these people a voice, you know, I, I do my best. I, I just do my best. That, that's all I could do, you know. I mean, but just from a human point of view. So uh, and that's 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 how I did it, like you know. And then there were other aspects to the production, like you know, I don't know if you've seen the little kind of uh, babies that are made in clay. Yes, yes. Yeah, that took so long. I had two Erasmus students during COVID with me, uh, Betty and Lucas, uh, fabulous kids. You know, they helped. I mean, because that was the only people in the crew, like you know. And they helped me building all those little figures. And, you know, it took so long. Yeah, because I thought that. I, I was looking at the faces and I said, I was thinking to myself, they probably created these and it was a lot of work. Yeah, a lot of work. And uh, I don't know if you can see in the corner of my studio there to the to the to my right in here, you know, uh, that brown thing is the house that those little faces were glued oh, to. Okay, I so understand. Like that yeah. house was... Uh, was is is I was filming the Jerusalem in a yes. in Castle Turbing in the nursing home, and they loaned it to me. I have to give it back to them, but it's a it's a bird cage. So that's how we that's how we created the jail for the faces. Yes, you know, yes. it's like it's that that house in wow. there. Yeah, it looks good because the artwork for the front of yeah. the you know the, the poster, it looks yeah. really good with those faces and the jail thing. It's really well done. It looks nice. Yeah, you know, yeah, and so you know. For you, obviously, now um, you mentioned earlier you have another project you're working on. Do you have? Do you think will you? For you, will it be more documentaries in the future, or will you do any like short movies, fact, fictitious, or you know, scripted? But, yeah, I'm. Well, I'm doing the the big feature, uh, the the big feature film, like you know, so that will be fiction, and uh, then documentaries. Yeah, I have two in the pipeline, you know, but I don't know what's gonna happen to them, like you know. Uh, one of them is like a little kind of five-part documentary. I can't really tell so much about it. And another one is just the one part, but it's a lot of fun, you know, and it's a different topic that I can't really say anything yet. Okay, but, uh, don't you know, worry, don't worry. Yeah, that's, no, uh, yeah, these are things we'll find out in good time. Yeah, I hopefully I, I get to, to, to make them before I get my job in McDonald's. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, McDonald's, McDonald's, when they listen to this, they'll be like, do you have uh, Teresa's number? Yeah. Because we need somebody. We need somebody in, in, in Galway God, or something. Like, you know, know, I mean, it is. Uh, yeah, it is so many times. Uh, well, I'm actually studying an MA this year because I hope I can go into teaching like you sometime, you know, like, yeah, and get paid for my work. <laughs> this, unfortunately, when you work in the arts, whether it's music or, you know, podcasting or film editing, you have to put in a lot of hours and you don't get paid for it, you know. Um, like, even with me, I'm in the second season of this podcast and, you know, I'm not becoming a millionaire from it and more I'm giving my money. Yeah, rather. Yeah. But, but the thing but the thing about it is, if you enjoy doing it and you can get stories out there and talk to interesting people, that's the reward. And, you know, I commend you for the work you're doing and I commend you for being brave and tackling stories that people don't want to talk about and putting them out there and also giving a voice to the victims. So I have to say, well done. And I mean, you deserve a lot of credit for that. And I only hope that more people kind of, you know, take 
the same initiative and do what you're doing that have the skills that you do and can get people's story out there. So I think, you know, well done. And I really enjoyed the movie. And I mean, it's been a pleasure having you on. I've loved hearing your stories about, you know, growing up in Spain. And obviously, you know, I'm glad that Ireland is your home now. And I'm glad that you're able to get that story out there. And, you know, that we're able to hear part of your story thank you so so much and thanks for giving me the space to talk here you know and also being like be honest to the audience you know i hope everyone understands my accent i apologize beforehand and uh, you know thanks simon stay in touch though you have to tell me about that uh, documentary series anyway yes for sure you know and so thank you very much, uh, Teresa Lavina. You. And, and you can watch Untold Secrets, hopefully in, in the next few months, um, unless you go to the San Francisco Film Festival first, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's the next one. Yeah, but I will keep everyone posted with it. Like, you know, hopefully we have a, a release soon anyway, a cinema release anyway. Yeah, so you can, for anybody who's interested, like in following the whole story, they can find you on Facebook and so on, yes? Absolutely, yeah. Anyone can follow me, you know, and uh, I'll be delighted to hear any you know any feedback yes and we will we will uh, when we post the podcast we will put up all relevant links and everything so people who have an interest can follow you and see what's happening and everything sorry i forgot to say simon like you know the indie cork festival is also on in in a in a couple of weeks you know so the movie is going to be online in, with the indie cork festival if any of, of your uh, listeners want to to hook up to the movie they can buy uh, the tickets through the through the Indie Cork. Perfect, perfect. That's really good. Listen, Teresa, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed talking to you. And we'll have you on again in the future, no doubt, because I think your star is rising and it will get bigger and better. Teresa Lavina, everybody. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Teresa. That was a really interesting chat. And although controversial and, you know, some people will have watched the movie already and lots of people hopefully will watch in the next few months or the next year and you they will be shocked by it you know because it's hard to believe lots of these things went on in ireland in this time and it did it happened and unfortunately history cannot be changed but we can redress the situation and we can try to improve it and improve those victims lives so i want to thank you for coming on the show and it was an interesting chat i really enjoyed it i loved hearing about your you know past life in spain and your you know working in arts and culture and cinema and i want to thank you and wish you all the best for your future projects and we will have you again on the show Thank you very much, Teresa Lavina. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining me on the Collective Whisper podcast. My name is Simon Kay. And until the next time, take care of yourself and everybody else. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.